It feels good to gift. So give your dad the One for All gift card this Father's Day and let him choose the gift he wants. With 100 plus brands to choose from and zero fees, there's no need to play the guessing game to show your appreciation. You know he'll get the gift he wants and making his day will make your day. Gifting feels good with the One for All gift card. Available in-store and at giftcards.com. See giftcards.com for terms and conditions. I commend the judge for making sure that this is a fair trial without a circus atmosphere. I'm sorry it can't be more open, but the alternative arrangements that are made are not inconsistent with the history of criminal justice in this state or around the country. Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we're all just trying to survive in a rough world. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime, and today is certainly no exception. Uh, We are diving back into the Lori Vallow Daybell story. It is day two of her long-awaited murder trial inside a Boise, Idaho courtroom. It is a trial of the so-called doomsday mom the wildly twisted story of a seemingly loving mother, a devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who becomes involved in the deaths of as many as five people, including her very own children. Best guest today, returning to the show when we are grateful for it, Dave Leroy is a trial lawyer with five decades of experience in preventing and solving problems for his clients, He has served as, listen to this, Ada County prosecuting attorney where this is all going down and Idaho attorney general, the top law enforcement officer in all of the great state of Idaho. And he was also lieutenant governor of Idaho uh, and the United States nuclear waste negotiator. Currently, he specializes in criminal defense cases. And then we've got Gene Fisher recently retired, although she's still working a bit, after nearly 33 years of service at the Ada County Prosecutor's Office as the Special Crimes Unit Chief. During law school, Jean interned at the Prosecutor's Office before being hired directly out of law school in 1989, not to date her, and by 1997, she became the supervisor of the Sexual Assault Unit and is focused on those cases Ever since, probably no one knows the Ada County Courthouse better than Jean Fisher. And then, of course, Tara Malik is returning as well. She has joined us, as did uh, Dave, on the uh, Idaho 4 case. Uh, Tara is an Idaho licensed attorney practicing in state and federal court in business and commercial litigation and has experience in both civil and criminal law. So, uh, Dave, I know your time is a little limited. Uh, So right off to you, out of the gates, um, five people close to this couple, to Lori uh, Vallow and Chad Daybell, have wound up dead. Uh, They're each now being charged with first-degree murder, conspiracy and grand theft and connections with the deaths of J.J. and Ty Lee, and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder and the death of Tammy Daybell. And they're also charged with financial crimes. This is not... uh, Unlike, in some ways, the Alec Murdoch trial that we uh, were covering gavel to gavel, as we are with this, what is your 360 bird's eye view uh, of this case, Dave? And uh, the state of Idaho is getting hit hard, uh, obviously, with the 
quadruple homicide and now uh, home to this uh, infamous trial as well. Well, these are dreadful facts as well as deadly facts. And it's really sad that uh, someone could not have interceded in Arizona or these children that's uh, a missing status could not have been detected earlier. And somehow some portion of this dreadful pile of uh, deadly facts could not have been interceded at, at an earlier level. Uh, this is a good test for the state of Idaho to find out to whether, and I believe we can, under these trying internationally noted, highly publicized circumstances, provide a fair trial uh, to the defendant. Uh, Ms. Vallow, now in the jury selection process, headed toward opening arguments uh, and headed toward the, pres the presentation of evidence here quite swiftly. Uh, I think Idaho will rise to the occasion. Uh, the judge, Judge Boyce from Eastern Idaho, sitting here in Boise, has shown good control of his courtroom. And I would expect uh, that this will be a trial that uh, is properly conducted and hopefully reaches an appropriate verdict, uh, even though the facts here, as I say, have been accumulating over far too long a period and are far too sad for all the people involved, and particularly those uh, who are victims or who have lost victims. And uh, Gene, I hate to put you on the spot since you're joining us for the very first time, and I don't know the answer to this question, and I should, but Tim is asking how many jurors selected today. Uh, do you happen to know? No, I was looking earlier. I think that they ha had selected five more the last I saw, so they were up to 22, and they need to get to 42 before they will release the jury pool. And uh, that five number is uh, the same amount that I saw as well. Um, we've got Kitty saying hello to STS. We've got uh, Lynn Aloha from Hawaii. Carrie G checking in. Uh, and my favorite name, everybody, as everyone knows, Shaquille Oatmeal uh, <laughs> joining us uh, today as well. Um, Gene, same question. I mean, you, you've Dave's got some of the... Uh, very uh, vaunted titles in uh, the state of Idaho, but you've been around um, not quite as long, but you, you've got a history there. Uh, what is your take on this case? Oh, hang on. So we just have to unmute you. I'm sorry. I think I'm see if you, there you go. I'm sorry. Um, my take is a lot like Dave's. I mean, it's an extraordinarily sad case. I think that um, one of the things that we get caught up in sometimes is that, because the children are involved, but we also we also have the the murder uh, as well of Tammy Daybell, and she kind of gets we don't hear we don't talk about as much about her. Um, we also we have three murders here in Idaho, um, and then of course there's other things going on in other jurisdictions, and certainly this didn't just come about in a in a short period of time. I think that Dave is right in that there were a lot of things going on in Lori Vallow Daybell's life uh, that. Unfortunately, people weren't able to intervene sooner. Um, this, you know, the, the talk of of um, mental illness and just some of the where she was going with her religious fanaticism, um, things that she was talking about certainly should have alarmed a lot of people. Um, but on the other hand, they did an awful lot. It sounds like to hide the children. Um, they had them removed from school, or um, so that people who could have been more supportive were not there to see see the kids and check in as often as well. So it's it's extraordinarily sad. 
I think it's going to be a, a very difficult case for the jury uh, to hear the evidence in this case. Um, and and there will be some things that just won't be answered for them, uh, it sounds like, um, that they're still going to have to arrive at a decision with the circumstantial nature of the case. And uh, shout out to Jimmy C., who's a friend of the show. Uh, he says, glad to see you back uh, and the gang. And then, of course, uh, Papa Bear, hello from Moscow, Idaho. Um, obviously a, a place that's near and dear to all our hearts, and now we know all too well. Um, Dave, I was speaking to uh, Jessica Bublitz, who's a defense attorney out of Boise and Tara. I did not forget about you. I'm coming to you, but um, I know Dave has got to run out. Um, but, you know, I said that Idaho is being hit hard, and as a good defense attorney would, she jumped back and said we're being uh, victimized from the outside. Um, do you feel that way? Because um, Lori Vallow came from Arizona, Brian Koberger from out of state. Um, and uh, Idaho is uh, getting the short end of the stick here with these uh, two infamous cases going on uh, almost simultaneously. Well, I guess uh, if you must find some solace in these uh, two cases, uh, perhaps that's a place to park. But in the modern world, with uh, boundaries called state borders that uh, sometimes mean a lot for some purposes and not much for others, uh, we've got a lot of influx of new people in Idaho. We've got uh, narrow geographic spires like our panhandle, uh, where the Washington border is uh, just six miles away from the University of Idaho. Uh, so I don't take much solace in the fact that we've got people coming in here because we expect everyone uh, in this state to comply with the requirements of a civic good judgment uh, and the law. Uh, both of the two women who were on with me today and on with us today have been prosecutors and have done a good job of enforcing that law fully and fairly. Uh, we don't discern between uh, where someone started out. We just expect everybody who's within our borders to comply with the law. And when challenged, as we are in these two terrible cases, so we expect to proceed logically, appropriately, constitutionally. Uh, to enforce the, the penalties that come with breaking the law. Uh, I'm uh, I'm a defense lawyer who's represented clients against both of these women, and I can assure you they're uh, up to the task, regardless of where you start out in life, inside Idaho or outside. Well said. Uh, Tara, you are uh, muted, but I'd like to get your take. Um, this is obviously an uphill battle for uh, the defense, and I'm not an attorney, but... Um, what would your strategy be in trying to defend Lori, which I know is a, a huge question to ask, but uh, to me, the obvious answer is you blame her brother, Alex Cox, who's deceased. Um, is that a smart strategy or how would you play it? Well, I think it's a, it's a battle for the prosecution. I mean, at first, you know, the burden of proof is on the state to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's not to say that the defense doesn't have a burden as well. Uh, and certainly those jurors sitting there are going to want answers. They are going to want to have explanations. Um, as I think Jean mentioned previously, there is a pretty large component of this case that's circumstantial. And so uh, one of the best strategies that I think the defense can uh, capitalize on is really looking at those circumstantial pieces of evidence and uh, 
providing alternate explanations for what's being presented to them. Uh, one of the other biggest burdens for a prosecutor is not only uh, describing and entering in the facts as they occurred in any sort of circumstance, but it's also uh, providing an explanation as to why. Now, they're not required to do that. That's not one of the elements of any one of these crimes. But uh, you're going to have to convince these people on the jury, why would someone go to these lengths? It has to be a plausible uh, recitation or a plausible story here. And so uh, for the defense, if I was on the defense side, which is going to be a stretch for me because I was a prosecutor, state and federal prosecutor. But if I were on the defense side, I'd be listening awfully closely to the evidence as it comes in on that circumstantial portions of this case and really leaning in and providing explanations where perhaps the state may not have one. And uh, Gene, to you, um, you, and by the way, uh, Eileen, thanks so much. Welcome back, Joel. Uh, sending sympathies about my father. I appreciate that so much. Hi from Portland, Oregon. We've got uh, a lot of ground covered. Papa Bear is always looking out for me. She says thumbs up for Joel and his great channel. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. But uh, Gene, you, you know the Ada County Courthouse better than anyone else and the process that's uh, being undertaken right now. Can you kind of just walk us through this jury selection process? From what I understand, Potential jurors, jurors filled out this questionnaire last week, and those who kind of passed the smell test were brought in this week and are now being questioned in the voir dire process. Can you just let the audience know sort of what's happening uh, hour by hour as they're choosing this jury right now? <coughs> oh, you're muted. You just have to unmute yourself. I'm sorry. Well, right now, the, um, the jury is being brought in in small panels. Um, in order to protect um, essentially the large jury pool from hearing something because of all the pretrial publicity. So they're being brought in in small panels at a time um, and being questioned about primarily, it sounds like, um, pretrial publicity um, and how much they know or don't know about the case um, and whether the time commitment, um, if they can be fair uh, to, the, to the time commitment as well. Um, and so they're, they're being brought in, in in panels of 10 to 12 people at a time. Um, and they're mostly being questioned on those, on the, on, on those issues at the moment. Um, there are definitely times, though, where because it's pre-publicity that jurors don't, do know quite a bit. Um, and so those jurors are now being, sounds like they're being questioned individually um, to, to discern how much they do or don't know. But just because somebody knows a little bit about the case doesn't mean that they can't be fair and impartial. And the judge wants to make sure, as do both parties, that what they do or don't know um, aligns with their ability to be fair and impartial. Uh, and so that's what they're doing right now. Once they get to that number of 42, uh, then the attorneys will really take over and be able to really work the jury um, and voir dire them about all the other issues and themes of the case that they need to, to work through. Um, you know, as Tara, Tara mentioned, there are there are questions here that um, they may not be able to answer. For instance, um, as we've read, uh, they, they may not know how how one of the victims died. Um, but you can work through, I and mean, then you can work through all of that um, and through a lot of this. I think that the circumstantial nature of the case, the way in which the the children were missing for as long as they were, the 
lead up and the build up to all of this. Um, I think that the you know the state can work through those issues, but they have a lot to work through in the Vordire process. Um, they've got a lot of themes that they're going to have to hit, a lot of conversation about um, religion, about uh, about more conversation about children, about um, people's involvement. Um, and um, because they've charged conspiracy, uh, the, the state has a lot of other ways in which to go about proving this case. And, and those are all different themes that they're going to have to weed through in order to get their jury ultimately at 18. And, uh, and just uh, Alec Murdoch is a case that we covered very closely. Uh, the judge in that case, Clifton Newman, he ran a very tight ship and that jury was chosen, I think, in three days. Um, you know this better than anyone else. If you had a guesstimate, how long before a jury is actually seated in this trial? I think they had hoped that they were going to get a little bit more today. Now they, they could have here. The judge yesterday had them going until about six o'clock at night um, and then um, had everybody back this morning bright and early. Uh, and so today is just the second day. So, so surely they, they can get a jury of 42 by the end of the week, I would, I would think. Um, but they, you know, they brought in uh, not a number of panel, small panels today and, and large amounts of them were all dismissed um, relatively quickly. Uh, so I, it's, it's, it's really kind of hard to know. Um, but I do think that this judge is doing this as carefully um, as he can so that uh, it avoids you know, contaminating the jury, the rest of the jury, um, and just making sure that they get it right. And uh, Natalie, Cass Natalie Cassidy writes, Joel, how is mom? Um, she's going to be a, a long struggle for her. However, I'm happy to report she started cursing today. So she's somewhat back to normal. Um, and uh, I was happy to see that. Uh, hello from Colorado here. Uh, Dave, back to you. Um, and Jean touched on this. I mean, the, the remains uh, were found back in uh 2019, I believe. Um, and they still have not been returned uh, to the family, to the grandparents. Um, how odd is this? Um, have you dealt with this before in your long career? Um, and what's it like or what, what do you imagine it's like for the vic you know, the victims, the families in this case? Well, of course, that's a dreadful result for the victims' families, but it's important to literally, quote, preserve the evidence of, of all types uh, during a trial proceeding, uh, probably during some portion of the appellate proceeding, so that if a later question comes up about whether something was done correctly or incorrectly, even during the course of trial, uh, perhaps a validation can be had one way or the other. So uh, while it uh, is almost inhumane not to have treated these uh, remains with more dignity more swiftly, uh, to achieve an appropriate justice uh, for those victims. Uh, sometimes it's necessary to follow an, uh, an incomprehensible procedure, but an appropriate procedure. I think that's what's happening here. Um, Tara, back to you. You know, you hear this expression all the time, a slam dunk case, and people presume that, you know, in a court of public opinion, Many people, because I get the emails, believe that she did this, uh, believe that Chad Daybell did this. Um, but is there such a thing, uh, in your opinion, as a slam dunk case, which is a phrase we hear all the time? 
There really isn't. Uh, I've had a number of trials, jury trials, bench trials, and I can tell you I've had cases that uh, looked like they were just slam dunk cases. And I took them to trial and a jury came back and disagreed. Uh, and I've had cases that were more of a stretch and it was more circumstantially based and I've had the reverse occur. So there's really no such thing as a slam dunk case. And I think something uh, almost magical happens when people are seated in that jury box and they become jurors for a case. They take that job incredibly seriously. And they really uh, focus on the elements that the state and the defense, if there's some sort of affirmative defense in, in different types of cases, have to prove. And so uh, I would expect that these jurors that are eventually seated are going to be no different. They're going to take their jobs very seriously. While the death penalty is, uh, for Lori anyways, is not on the table anymore, we're talking about taking away someone's freedom for the rest of their life. And a transformation does occur uh, for those jurors once they get seated in there. And I think uh, we are going to see individuals that will be paying very close attention and really making sure that the state uh, meets their burden, their high burden here in this case. And uh, Papa Bear got me. I was getting to this, but uh, I've realized that uh, Dave is going to be leaving us uh, sooner than we'd like. So uh, let's get to Papa Bear's question here from Moscow, Idaho. Interested in the guest perspectives on cameras not being allowed in the courtroom and being charged for each day's audio recordings and charged quite a bit. Um, Gigi McKelvey of Pretty Lies and Alibis did the math. And for a 10-week trial, I think it would come out to $6,000 at the rate that they're charging. Um, as an Idahoan, I think it's a travesty, especially to the uh, grandparents who are Kay and Larry Woodcock. Uh, Dave, back to you on this. Uh, what about this, what can be argued as a lack of transparency, Judge Boyce uh, not allowing cameras in the courtroom, where sometimes we do see them. Uh, in the case of the Trump indictment today, no cameras were allowed. But what about as it pertains to this particular case? Well, once upon a time, just as we have in this trial, we had artists in the courtroom who were drawing pictures of witnesses of the overall uh, situation uh, of, of visage of the judge looking down from the bench. And I've even got some of those pictures where I had brown hair. So uh, <laughs> it's not entirely uh, uh, without uh, some possibility of the, the human beings uh, who are interested, both inside and outside the courtroom, uh, having some sense of participation. I don't know anything about uh, the rate at which they're charging for audio recordings, but I do know we have uh, members of the citizenry in the actual courtroom. We have a, a sub broadcast to an overflow courtroom. Uh, we are making arrangements uh, to uh, do the audio and uh, the images from the courtroom will be available to illustrate uh, video stories. So that's probably the next best thing. And it shows me once again that this judge is not going to allow this to denigrate into any kind of circus inside the courtroom. So a, a pool camera now these days can be relatively unobtrusive. Uh, but in the good old days uh, when images were drawn by artists, uh, cameras were big, they had Klieg lights, uh, and it really was a circus. So I commend the judge for making sure that this is a fair trial without a circus atmosphere. I'm sorry it can't be more open, but the alternative arrangements that are made are not inconsistent with the history of criminal justice 
in this state or around the country. And uh, Gene, I would love to get your take on that. And uh, what what is the protocol these days? Are there typically typically are are cameras typically allowed uh, in recent trials? Is this a diversion from that? Uh, and your thoughts? It really is uh, case by case, and it's up to the judge um, and each presiding matter to make the decision whether or not to allow courtrooms in the camera. I didn't think that Dave and I would have so much to agree about all the time, but uh, <laughs> but I agree. I mean, you know, this case already has so much. Um, there's just so many factors that are going that are involved in this. It has had so much publicity. It's been on Dateline. It's been there's been so much publicity that having court, the cameras in the courtroom, I think, does add um, concern about more publicity. Um, as Tara mentioned, there is something that magical that happens once the jury gets seated, that they really do take their job professionally and, and thoughtfully. And and as citizens, it's the highest duty and they will be reminded of that at every break, um, not to listen to the news, not to pay attention to cameras outside, not to read the newspapers. I mean, they will be reminded of it over and over and over again. But there is something to be said about cases sometimes where where the media is allowed in the courtroom and and um, and the trial gets away from people uh, and and you start playing and it starts playing on itself and it looks more of a circus. And in the end, here this is really serious stuff. I mean, we have three three of three victims who 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 have been murdered. I believe who have been murdered. Um, I think we have three homicides. We have someone who has been charged um, with these crimes. Um, and, um, you know, we, we want a fair trial just once. You know, we don't, we don't want to do it a second time. And there are enough issues in this case that we don't need the media involvement necessarily in the courtroom um, to get things uh, on its head. So I, I mean, I, I think we're doing as much as we possibly can um, to keep the public informed of what's going on, but not having the, the, the cameras in the courtroom. That's an interesting case uh, with a long history in the legal profession, both in favor of no cameras, whereas STS Nation is a bit outraged that there are no cameras. So uh, the court of public opinion differs from uh, people who are in the legal profession. And this is a perfect example. So Gene, I'm 53. I'm not sure what I want to be when I grow up. H how did you know at a law school that you wanted to intern at the prosecutor's office and then spend an entire career there? A, a Larry Bird jersey, 33 years. How, how do you do that? Why? Uh, you know, it even goes back further than that. Uh, my sister, uh, was a was a secretary in the prosecutor's office when I was in high school, and uh, the the office was just a few blocks away. And I used to walk over there uh, during my high school. I was the editor of the Boise Highlights, and I used to walk over and rummage around and look for stories to talk about First Amendment and Fourth Amendment and things like that. Um, and so I I kind of grew up uh, knowing that office. Um, and you know, in the end, I you know interning there. Um, Taking up those, uh, taking up these kinds of cases where I believe that prosecutors are true are the true public defenders in the world, um, that we are the true public defenders um, against crime um, and for civility, and and it's just something that spoke to me. Um, I didn't know that I would go into the type of victim cases that I that I uh, did, but those are cases that. Um, 
that I was really uh, compelled to work on. And, um, and I've been, I was really fortunate. I mean, I had one boss, uh, the elected prosecutor in Ada County for 25 years. And then after that, a, a second elected who, you know, the stability of that kind of office is amazing. And so I, I really, I was really lucky. Dave, is it fair to say that uh, Jean is, is a bit of a legend in Ada County? And what, what, what was she like in that courtroom, Dave? Well, you know, I'm uh, always worried about calling somebody a legend or an icon because most of the legends and icons I know are dead. <laughs> but uh, Jean deserves the title of, uh, of a, uh, a very significant, longstanding figure uh, who has made a difference in our community. No question about that. Uh, she was tough to try a case against. She was tougher to negotiate against. Uh, the world is a better place for Jean Fisher having worn the prosecutor's robe. See, it's it's nice to hear that while you're still alive, Gene. So there you go. <laughs> yes, it is. Dave and I tried a few cases against each other, and well, I'd like to. And, and you that. won. You won. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it was that one time. <laughs> <laughs> no comment from Dave. Uh, somewhere over there, right? So it is reported, uh, Tara, this one's for you, that Lori is laughing while chatting with her attorneys. And I've seen that on these live uh, tweet streams. Uh, the potential jurors are witnessing this behavior, right? Are they watching her, um, uh, potential these potential jurors, as she's laughing? And what would you instruct your defendant to be doing, Tara? Uh, absolutely, they're watching her. I think the case tr it starts really when those potential jurors walk into that courtroom. Uh, they are going to be looking at the defendant. They're going to start making and and uh, observations, and they're going to carry some of those observations through to the end of trial. And so, uh, if it were me, if it were my client, uh, I would be advising them to, uh, you know have a sense of decorum, the sense of decorum that this type of case really demands, uh, given the serious nature of it, given the tragedies that have occurred. Uh, I would not be advising, you know, laughing and giggling and smiling or whatever else, you know, that kind of lighthearted behavior really doesn't have a place. Uh, there are circumstances where, you know, for example, in the Alex Murdoch trial, there are points of levity in the case, and naturally everyone will laugh. There might be a joke to break the ice or the tense moment. Uh, certainly those are different situations and circumstances, but just to sit there uh, during the preliminary proceedings here and laugh and smile is definitely not the impression you want to start making. Uh, KCL, who's a friend of the show and following this uh, very closely, uh, puts this on the record for all of us. Three jurors left to go through voir dire. 27 out of 42 selected so far. Coming up big with the numbers. We've got the Czech Republic in the house here, Ziza. So we've got uh, a global audience. And then Bonnie Hitchcock writes, first time on a live, give a shout out to the South, Georgia, USA. We covered uh, the case out of Cotton County in South Carolina with Alec Murdoch. So we've got a lot of Southern friends here. Um, and then hello from the great Northwest and uh, in Seattle. Um, Dave, to you, kind of the same question I asked uh, Tara. Uh, is there such a thing as a slam dunk uh, case? And if you are def defending Lori Vallow uh, in this trial, 
Um, what sort of strategy do you think you devise to try to get justice for your client? Well, I agree with Tara. There are no slam dunk cases. The strongest cases I ever had as a prosecutor, I feared because I was uncertain as to what might fall apart next or first. So uh, it's it's uh, difficult when you have the burden of proving every element of a crime beyond a reasonable doubt to make sure that all the pieces fit, that all the witnesses report on time, that all the evidence gets in. Uh, there are no slam dunk cases in a process as complicated as criminal justice. Uh, the defense uh, here, I think, needs to sit back and be as strategic as they can. Uh, they will have had uh, hundreds, thousands of pages of discovery, literally. We know that they got 5,000 pages at the last possible minute, which I think was probably a factor on the judge taking the the death penalty off the table. Uh, we also know that uh, they probably have retained some of their own scientific evidence experts on some of these aspects of triangulation of uh, cell phone or cause of death. Uh, the problem I think that defense has most in this particular case is that five or six months of very eloquent silence wherein uh, the mother of these children was not reporting or cooperating with regard to their absence from the world. Uh, that speaks pretty, pretty significant volumes about uh, her somehow being complicit or confused uh, or under the influence uh, of an abnormal religious belief about where these uh, children were and what she should have been doing. So uh, there will be a strategy that the defense has, whether they will call her as a witness uh, is up in the air and a decision that will be hers and hers alone, but at the last minute in full consultation with her defense team. So uh, I think we'll just have to sit back and be uh, witnesses to whatever it is that they think they can pick apart uh, by virtue of cross-examination or uh, the contesting of particular pieces of evidence, uh, see whether there is some opening for the defendant herself to testify consistent with whatever they think a successful defense might be. Uh, it's up in the air and we won't really know until all of the pieces begin to fit together. And Dave, since I know you have to run in a, in a few, um, were you surprised that Judge Boyce took the death penalty off the table in this case? Well, it was uh, a relatively unprecedented maneuver, in my opinion. Uh, and I would be very interested, and I'll, I will have to go, but I would be very interested in having you pursue with the other two very experienced prosecutors uh, on your, uh, in your panel uh, why they think this may have happened. At one time, uh, when I was a graduate law student at uh, New York University, I wrote uh, a novel law review article on the motion in limine, a technique for the pretrial exclusion of evidence. And you'll recall that uh, about the time that the defense received 5,000 pieces of new evidence and 30 hours worth of testimony from the prosecution in a last-minute discovery dump, a literally last-minute discovery dump, uh, that they filed a motion in limine to preclude the introduction of that evidence in the trial. I think the judge was faced with a very difficult choice to give the defense or order the defense uh, to take more time and study that against Lori's wishes for a speedy trial, or in the alternative, 
to preclude some or all of that evidence from potentially coming in, even if it was uh, earlier disclosed because it was redisclosed in this new uh, dollop, uh, or do something novel like take the death penalty off the, at the table. So I think he awarded the defense uh, a partial victory by taking the defense up position uh, halfway uh, that the defense uh, should not have to face a death penalty scrutiny in this case, uh, making every evidentiary objection, the Supreme Court argument, speeding up the trial and uh, focusing it more properly on the issues of proof of who did what to whom, rather than that under that undercoating, that underlying issue of, is this something for which somebody should be put to death? Uh, I think it was a halfway compromise uh, with a recognition to the defense that they kind of caught the prosecution in an inappropriate move at the last minute. That's my opinion. And I'll have to drop off, and I'm eager to hear, as I know your listeners are, what the ladies uh, would have to say on that. And that is not just any guess. Thank you, Dave. That is Dave Leroy, the former lieutenant governor, the former attorney general, the former prosecuting attorney for Ada County. Uh, Dave, we thank you for joining us and hope you'll come back as this trial plays out. Thank you. Um, and we'll get back to uh, the death penalty issue. But, Gene, this is an interesting question from Amy in Boston. What is the chance of these potential jurors knowing this case like we do, wanting to get on to convict her? Because it is a high profile case. Books can be written. You can appear on TV shows. How concerned uh, were you uh, in a high profile case of a situation like this? Well, I mean, that's why we I think that's why this judge and is is being so careful with the <clears throat> with this jury panel. Um, you know, Eighteen hundred jurors were called in. They had a 20 page questionnaire. And now they're being brought in, in 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 relatively small pools to try and ferret out who knows what about the case. And, you know, jurors are, are uh, sworn in and we ask them to tell the truth about their knowledge and and in this instance specifically about pretrial publicity um, and how much they know or don't know. And while they can certainly hide that, uh, we hope that that they don't. We're looking to make sure that they aren't. Um, we we really are interested in a fair and impartial jury. Um, you know, a lot of things can go wrong when when jurors aren't truthful in this matter. Um, you know, they get back into the into the jury room and. And, you know, somebody slips or somebody starts talking about, you know, having a conversation as they familiarity and the trial goes on and you get to know your jurors and they tell somebody the things that they saw um, and it pollutes the whole panel. And then you have to start over again. I mean, it's it's very serious business. Um, and so, while it's hard to believe that um, some folks are coming in saying that they've never heard of the case, which we has been reported. Um, more likely what we've heard is people have walked in and said, well, they knew a little bit about the case. And then, of course, there are those who who straight up, you know, so they watch state line. You know, they, they know a lot about the case, what they believe that they've already seen and and heard. So, you know, we, we, we really need jurors to be fair and impartial because it's, it, it does no, no side either favor here. Uh, and if jurors slip this up and, and then we find out in the middle of this uh, that, Somebody wasn't fair and they, they've been watching all along. We got to start everything all over again. And, um, and that truly is a travesty for everybody. And a and shout a out shout to Mabel Cadilla, a friend of the show. She is ready to watch and learn. Um, 
Tara, over here, um, this comment, uh, I have problems believing that Lori does not know what is happening with her and believing that she won't be held responsible uh, for her reactions. Do you have any reaction uh, to uh, this comment? Uh, you know, I think the comment is, uh, as I think it really goes to her capacity, so her competency and some of the competency issues that were at issue uh, and in play a little bit earlier on in the case. I think, um, you know, she was deemed to be not competent to stand trial early on. Uh, that changed. She spent, I think, 90 days uh, away and getting treatment. She's now uh, been judged or decreed to be competent to stand trial. I think uh, she's certainly in a place where she knows what's going on, uh, and that's based on the opinion of medical professionals. So uh, I would hope that she understands the seriousness of uh, these proceedings and what's going on around her. And were, were you surprised um, with the issue of the death penalty being taken off the table when you found that out? I was surprised that that's not a um, that's not a usual thing that you see uh, when there is late disclosure of discovery and discovery is a very important period of time between the attorneys in a case where they're exchanging information. So we don't do trial by surprise. We exchange the information prior to trial. Everyone knows what everybody kind of has the cards on the table and then you proceed forward to trial. Um, Having a sanction, a discovery sanction, include taking the death penalty off the table is is unusual. Uh, and I was surprised to see it. I uh, read through um, the decision and and understand why it was made, but I would say that this is not typical. Carrie writes, "Hello from Rexburg, Idaho, which is where the remains were found. Following Nate Eaton's updates from East Idaho." Uh, East Idaho News. Shout out to Nate Eaton, who I don't know, but provides great information. Uh, she says she plans on being in the Rexburg courthouse once the trial actually begins. Um, wanted to get that comment uh, in there. Gerald writes here, uh, Gene, I'm hearing that the prosecutor is really questioning people with children. Uh, that's probably a smart move for the state to try to get people right with kids. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's both. You know, they they um, they need to they need to work with the jurors that they have, and and uh, you know most of them are probably do have children, um, and and that's obviously a huge part of this case is the is the victimization of those two children, um, not only with their ultimate death, but even leading up to that and what were they exposed to uh, that the jurors will find out about leading up to their death and, and what was going on in that house um, uh, prior, you know, just prior uh, to uh, to when they died. Um, <clears throat> so I'm sure that they're asking jurors about um, would they be able to be fair and impartial knowing that there are children involved in the deaths of these children and that their mother was involved in that. Um, in some capacity. And remember, it's it, she's charged with both the murder of those children and then the conspiracy to murder those children. And so, you know, it's it's uh, they, the state has a lot more leeway in the way that it's been charged as far as evidence that it's able to bring in about her knowledge um, with actually complicitly involved in, in their murder or, or, or involved in the, in the act itself. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, I it, it's and it's gruesome. I mean, you know, the the children, the way the children were found um, on on uh, Chad Dayball's property um, in garbage bags, um, delimbed and burned, and I mean, just it's it's awful. Uh, and um, and and we want to make sure that that people can work with that, um, which is really tough. You know, I mean, we these folks are just coming in from their regular lives, right? And we, we, we call jurors and um, oftentimes, you know, this would happen in some of my worst child abuse cases. We call folks in and they uh, don't know what they're coming in for, although in this case, obviously they do, but they don't know the context of all the evidence that they're going to hear. And you, you start to read the indictment, the judge reads the indictment to them, and you can start to see the just the look of of uh, panic and some horror on others' faces, and and people's own experiences um, as adults and reflecting back on their own childhood. And I often wondered how many victims we had just in the in the jury panel, and and you don't get to offer them counseling when they walk out the door. Um, you know, some of these jurors are could really really be affected by what what they're going to hear and the decisions that they're going to have to make. Um, and, you know, we know that that can be um, really, really tough on folks. Um, and we're asking them to uh, for a heavy lift um, in this uh, constitutional duty that that we have. Um, and it's it's a it's a tough one. And they are asking if they can handle looking at uh, gruesome autopsy photos and things of that nature. Um, Venus Gal here writes, uh, Gene, this just give you an idea of how SCS Nation is is coming at this. The judge is careful and takes time, but that and other things resulted in the case being severed and Lori's death penalty being removed, not impressed, followed again by KCL, who's following this very closely. The judge doesn't seem to be letting any jurors pass through if they know about the case. It is another indicator of his secretiveness and suspicions of potential jurors evidence of his lack of trust, in my opinion. Uh, curious, uh, your thoughts on this comment. And also, do you know Judge Boyce? I don't know Judge Boyce, and I've never appeared in front of him or practiced in front of him at all. And I just don't think that that's an accurate um, statement. I don't think that there's a secretiveness or a suspiciousness of, of uh, and his nature. I mean, I truly believe that he's looking for fair and impartial jurors. Um, this has had a tremendous amount of publicity um, and um, you know, there's been books, there's been datelines. There's, I mean, we, we, we know how much has been out there. And so I think that it's important to make sure that, um, you know, the jurors that we have can be fair and impartial. I don't know if he's, if everyone is being kicked off, if they've even heard about the case, I didn't think that was the situation. It's, that's not been my experience. Um, and some of my bigger cases in Ada County, um, you know, we don't ask jurors to leave their their common sense at the door. We don't ask them, um, you know, we expect that, you know, jurors have been paying attention um, otherwise, but we need to make sure that they are prepared in this instance um, to give this their their fairest um, mindset. And, um, and I, I can't really... Um, emphasize that enough. We, we only want to try this case once. Um, and, you know, it's been a long time coming, right? I mean, this case has gone on for a long time. Uh, and it's time to it, it, it's, it's time to get this thing off the ground and get it moving. 
Uh, misdemeanor rights. Uh, during voir dire, can the lawyers strike people for being a certain religion? Tara, can they? No. <laughs> the answer is no. You cannot. Uh, you know the the um, it's a good question. So I don't I don't mean to make light of it. it. It is a really good question. But no, you can't do that. the The jury selection process is really a deselection process. So what you're going in is with a group of people, uh, potential jurors, and then the lawyers are going in and deselecting people that they think uh, can't operate in a uh, fair or impartial manner. They can't weigh the evidence. Uh, and you've asked, you know, some of those questions about children, for instance. Uh, religion is is not a basis where you can strike a juror. Um, if someone comes in and says, for instance, that they believe, uh, you know, that they can't ever sit in judgment of anybody else, they will not follow the judge's uh, instructions as to the law. That's a different situation. In that situation, you know, the judge uh, would excuse upon motion from uh, one or the other side uh, that juror for cause, uh, or a peremptory can be used later on. But but you can't just straight up get rid of somebody because of their religious beliefs. And that's why we have our uh, lawyerly guests on to answer these questions. <laughs> Leanne writes, uh, David Leroy always represent. Uh, Idaho, appreciate him as Lieutenant Governor. I've had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Leroy, a true gentleman, and uh, we will let him know uh, that you said that. A gentleman who Gene Fisher beat in the courtroom, for the record. Sky Ricky writes, uh, for the Murdoch case, no one in the jury was allowed to take notes uh, throughout the trial. And what do you think about that, Gene? We're going to get to you in a second on this. It forces the jury to pay more attention, in my opinion, what is the deal with your oars and their notes? Uh, I, I mean, I've never had a situation where jurors were not allowed to take notes in the courtroom. Um, what they are instructed um, is that um, while they can take notes, no one can be a note, like no one can be a scribe or no one can be assigned to take notes for the rest of the jury. Um, and that ultimately, if there is a, a description or a, a discrepancy between their notes and what they remember, whether they rely on what they remember. Um, but I've never had a case where jurors weren't allowed to actually write notes. Um, you know, they're protected if they do um, so that nobody else is supposed to be able to see them. The courtroom is sealed. They, they're not allowed to take them home with them. Um, and like I said, they're not allowed to use them as a substitute for what they actually heard in the courtroom. Um, or to have somebody assigned to be like secretary, if you will, or a scribe. Um, and uh, so that's that's all I've ever heard of that before. I've never I've never heard of not being able to take a note. And uh, Tara, to you, Suzanne writes, why would Chad Daybell's lawyer be allowed to be in the courtroom overflow where media are? Has it been decided if the grandparents are allowed to be uh, in the courtroom yet. I have not heard of a decision on that. We're talking about Kay and Larry Woodcock. I don't know if Tara has, but what about the fact that the uh, other defendant, now that the cases have been severed, that his defense attorney uh, was in fact uh, there today? Tara, is that normal? Well, I, I think when the cases are severed like this, uh, there's still some commonality of facts. And so I guess I'm not surprised that he would be allowed into the overflow room. Uh, as to the question of the grandparents, 
being allowed in the courtroom. I checked right before we kind of hopped on here and I didn't see that the court had made a decision as of about an hour ago. I think uh, it was predicted that a decision on that would be uh, given today. Um, you know, certainly a, a extremely difficult uh, call given the fact that the grandparents are both uh, witnesses and victims in a way in this case as well. And uh, Sue L. writes, uh, and Jean, this is in response to what you and Dave had to say, totally disagree with these opinions for a closed court. Scrutiny and transparency is a vital component of our justice system. We all know what tends to happen without it. I just want to give you a chance to respond, because as I said earlier, STS Nation is up in arms, and this is the court of public opinion, that there are no cameras. So uh, you are a, uh, a fierce litigator. Um, what's your response to this? Well, um, while, there aren't, while there, aren't, uh, there aren't cameras in the courtroom, there are cameras that are being allowed for the press to see. Um, there is an overflow room. The press is able to see what's going on in the courtroom, as is a certain amount of participants who are, you know, essentially lottery uh, to be able to sit in the courtroom. Plus, they'll be able to see, I, I think they're going to have a camera in Rexburg as it goes on live stream as well. I had heard that. Um, it's it's not being played for the general community. Um, and But the press is able is going to be able to watch this as it, as it takes place. It's just not going to be in the community. And so, you know, the press um, is going to be able to report on it. Um, First Amendment rights are going to be able to see what's happening and, and talk about it. I know that I know that people want cameras in the courtroom and think that that's the way it should be all the time. But as you know, as Dave said, there was a time when, you know, we didn't have that. Um, and and the case went forward. And really, this is for the jurors to decide this case. This is not a case for the entire general community. Uh to decide the case. Um, we have a system of, of laws. Um, we were going to pick a jury um, and that jury is going to make the decision. And, um, and we all hope that, you know, as a prosecutor, we all hope they, they come to the right decision. Um, but we don't get to try this as a community, if you will. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I am certain that, that um, the press is, will get access. I, I do think it's, um, I, I heard about the cost um, and I'm really surprised at how much they are charging uh, in order to get the transcripts. Um, uh, I heard that from, from one of our uh, media partners here in Boise um, and they were really complaining about the cost and how they were going to be pooling uh, their resources for some of this. Um, I've never had that instance before, um, but I, you know, I, I, I have full faith in the jury system itself and I'm, I am certain that uh, this jury will be better off, quite frankly, not having cameras in their faces and they will participate and listen carefully to what's being presented to them and they will make a decision. Um, we've also seen where the press being allowed in the courtroom has had, you know, has had really negative effects um, where they play up to the jury um, and the jury plays, you know, starts to pay attention to what the camera is doing and instead of paying attention to what is actually happening in front of them. So, I've seen it go both ways for sure. And uh, not to beat a dead horse, but I'll take a couple more questions on this and then and move on from there. But HMS uh, 19591 writes, 
It seems to me this judge, and by the way, there is a sketch artist, but it's not a courtroom sketch artist. That sketch artist has been hired by uh, different media outlets. Uh, they're pooling their money together, and uh, that uh, sketch artist is sitting in one of the overflow rooms watching the basically the Zoom monitors uh, and sketching from that. And apparently it's hard to tell detail uh, because the cameras are in a wide shot. Um, so a little factoid there. But HMS writes, it seems to me this judge is siding with the defense more. No cameras in a very high-profile case makes it seem like they have something to hide from the public, Tara, followed by this comment from Susan Moore. The judge apparently doesn't agree with the Supreme Court regarding cameras in the courtroom and the First Amendment. He must be very old school. Um, do you agree with Gene and Dave uh, that it is not necessarily a bad thing that there are no cameras? I think there are pros and cons to having a camera in the courtroom. I, I, you know, it wasn't, it was what, almost 30 years ago now that we had the OJ Simpson trial and uh, Judge Ito had ruled that they could have one camera in the courtroom. And, you know, uh, I remember that in, in that case, both the defense attorney, I think it was Robert Shapiro and then um, uh, Mark Shaver came out and they, uh, they both wanted the cameras in the courtroom for different reasons. Uh, Robert Shapiro had come out and said that, uh, you know, that he wanted the public to see that there was going to be an acquittal and that the case was tried fully and fairly. And I believe the prosecution had said very similar things. And so fast forward, you know, almost 38, you know, 28 years, 30 years later, uh, to now, and we're facing a very different situation with both the prosecution and the defense attorneys agreeing that cameras shouldn't be in the courtroom or requesting that cameras not be in the courtroom. Um, you know, any case like this is going to be high pressure for both sides. Uh, there's a lot at stake. It's someone's livelihood. Uh, certainly, the as I said before, the state has a high burden of proof. Uh, uh, the defense has their job cut out for them as well. Um, Media and media scrutiny and cameras can certainly add to that. Uh, on and and you know the the court was really taking into consideration the judge was taking into consideration their right to uh, being tried fairly and fully, uh, and it's a constitutional right. Uh, but on the flip side of that, uh, you know we have allowed cameras access into our courtrooms. We've allowed the public to view. Uh, cases, uh, even, you know, high profile cases before like the OJ Simpson trial. Uh, I think there were some lessons there. I think that, um, you know, this fear of it having sound bites or playing up to uh, the camera and it turning into kind of a circus uh, is a really real fear. I think that occurred in certain instances at certain parts of the OJ Simpson trial. And um, I don't know how much the, the judge was considering that, uh, certainly nothing in the opinion to indicate that he went down that road, but just something else to consider here. Um, you know, as a member of the public, I would have liked to see what was going on in the trial, but uh, I understand that the court has discretion under the court rules. Uh, Janet B. writes, hi, everyone from southeastern Idaho, where I understand, well, I don't know if it's snowing in southeastern Idaho, but it's snowing in a lot of the rest of Idaho and in Utah, and uh, I don't want to rub it in, but I'm in Miami Beach where it's a little hot here today, almost 88 degrees, but I'm thinking of you guys. Sorry about that. Um, 
Suzanne writes, this is a relatively new judge, and I don't think he realizes that making this so secretive only serves to cause increased speculation, in my opinion. So uh, that debate will continue. Um, Gene, I thought this was interesting. Uh, It was revealed today uh, in the courtroom. Obviously, people knew this uh, ahead of time, but Idaho law prohibits employees, employers from penalizing employees for serving jury duty, but companies do not have to pay you for jury service. Uh, Many employees take accrued pay leave when they serve on a jury. Uh, So some people today said it was going to be financial hardship because they weren't necessarily going to get paid. And then it was also revealed uh, in court today that the state of Idaho pays jurors $10 per full day of jury served or $5 for each half day or portions of a day served. Um, that's definitely not the fee that a criminal defense attorney makes. Uh, does that need to change? Because that, I think, in your opinion, is one of the most important jobs there is. Yeah, it's pretty antiquated. Um, you know, I think that's a raise. Uh, last time I did a trial, it was $8 a day, um, and now they're up to 10 Um <laughs> I mean, it is a, you know, I mean, it is a, it is a, um, a civic duty. Um, it's part of our, it's part of our judicial system um, for jurors. Um, we don't have professional jurors um, like they do in other places in the world um, that actually sit for long periods of time and hear many cases, um, you know, and, and our, our laws here in Idaho and employment laws, I don't know that they're that different. I don't know if they compare to other how they compare to other states as far as, um, who gets paid for what for loss of for, for loss of jury service and jury duty work? So I'm I'm not versed on what other states uh, do for that part for those portions. I just want to go back though for a minute as far as you know. Um, you also have to take into consideration with this case. I mean, it is it is a remarkable case uh, where we were going. To, we will learn a lot of facts about obviously as the case moves on, but there quite frankly is some really bizarre behavior. Um, and, and, um, the, the religious fanaticism, the, um, the things that, that we already know about with Tam, with, um, Lori, uh, Daybell and Chad, um, and their life and where they went off and where they spun off in their lives, um, is, um, does have the, does have, uh, the ability to, to take off into a circus atmosphere. Um, and I don't think not having the cameras in the courtroom means that they're not getting a that it's not fair here. Um, lots of people are going to be are still watching this. Um, you know, all the press is still watching this. Uh, people are watching it. People are reporting on it. Um, it's not like somebody's getting away with something that is suspicious or that they're trying to hide anything because it's still getting a lot of attention. It's just not getting the it's not getting as much much of a media presence as some people would like. But this is not happening in secret um, by any means. Um, this is still a public trial, um, and um, and and all the rules of evidence, you know, are there for everyone to, are there for the lawyers to litigate. So I, you know, I really, I really disagree that there's some sort of conspiracy or some thought process that somebody that the judge has something to hide here. Um, this is still a very public trial. And uh, shout out to KCL for updating us here. Joel is now 30 of 42 jurors all done for the day. So they are inching closer. And uh, Jean says she thinks we'll have a jury seated by the end of the week and uh, certainly looks 
like we are headed in that direction. A few more comments and then some bigger picture questions. And then we'll wrap this all up. Uh, Carrie G writing, Lori smiling is grotesque. Your children are dead. Have the decency to show you grieve. Um, followed here, and this is a great question. By the way, what happened to all the promised audio? Court website claimed it would be available at the end of each day. I have not heard uh, the audio yet. Um, I'll have to check in once again with Gigi McKelvey, who has the podcast Pretty Lies and Alibis. She's one of the go-to people for this case. So if you haven't, check out her podcast, as well as Lori Hellis. They were both on the show yesterday, and Lori has a blog on all this, and she's writing a book called The Lori Vallow Story. So uh, check them out because they are uh, right on top of everything. Um, we've got Texas in the house and a hello from Nampa, Idaho, a town that I have never heard of growing up in New Jersey, but now I have. Um, let's step away from, you know, kind of the minutia of jury selection and all this. And let me ask you a big picture question here, Tara, and you may or may not want to answer it. So you can tell me to buzz off if uh, you don't. But we posed this question a while back. Is Lori Vallow uh, Daybell pure evil or mentally ill or maybe a little bit of both? Have you thought about this? Because if what she's accused of doing is true, it's pretty wacky. Um, what are your thoughts? That is a really big and very <laughs> difficult question, I think, to answer. Uh, you know, I, I I think anytime someone intentionally takes a life, there is certainly an element of um, evil in them. I, I can't imagine taking a life. And so uh, it, it's hard for me to even wrap my brain around. Uh, there certainly seems to be indicators here that Lori uh, Vallow Daybell suffers from some pretty significant uh, mental health issues, perhaps. Uh, and I say that based on number one, uh, you know, the issue of her competency, which was, uh, came up early on in this case. Uh, even some of the behavior that we all kind of read about, you know, this idea of zombies taking over, uh, the kids and, um, this pattern of, uh, really strange behavior, you know, not telling anyone where the children were, fleeing to Hawaii, you know, going across state lines. It's certainly not the behavior of someone that uh, we would consider who is um, undisturbed, for lack of a better term for it. So in my opinion, I think that mental health issues are certainly uh, uh, present here or some indicators of mental health issues may be present here. And I have to correct myself, Joel. I think I said, <laughs> I think I said, Marsha Shaver and the for the prosecution and the O.J. Simpson and uh, case, and that was actually Marsha Clark. And I was like, wait a minute, I got to go back in my memory. So before I get all sorts of feedback on that, <laughs> all good. And uh, it stands. It is corrected on the record. Uh, shout out to Louise Rallo. She says this chat is so professional. Really nice to see. She's in the Great White North in Canada, and. Uh, and she was having a little issue with her mother. I hope everything is okay there. Um, followed here by Jinx Krug. Yay, Chicago. Eastern Iowa here. So we've got um, a lot of the United States covered, including Southern Illinois. Um, same question to you, Gene. Um, apparently, Lori Vallow believed, uh, according to documents, that she could teleport between Arizona and Hawaii. 
They believed that uh, their kids, JJ and Tylee, had become zombies, and those zombies had to be eliminated, and that was why they had to be killed. Um, you have a lot of experience. Um, in some way, lawyers are like my parents. My dad was a psychiatrist. My mother is a social worker. You've got to understand the human mind. So same question. Do you think she's pure evil, mentally ill? Maybe a, is it possible, possible to be a combination of both? Yeah, that is a that is the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, I think it's uh, it, it, it's it's hard to say, but I think that it's a combination of both. Um, certainly, there her her issues of mental competency were challenged, um, and she was hospitalized in Idaho. There is no um, you can't uh, have not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, we have no we don't have that defense here at all. Uh, and so even though she is competent now, competent meaning that she is able to assist her lawyers um, in the day-to-day -day of the court proceedings and that she understands what's happening, it doesn't mean that she still might not have some pretty crazy ideas uh, in her head and that she has some crazy beliefs. And uh, that doesn't mean, you know, that, that a lot of people might think that what she thinks is at all normal. Um but that's not the test here. Um, you know, she she competency in this instance means that she's able to uh, to assist in her defense. Do I think that she's pure evil um, versus pure mental ill? I would I agree with Tara that there's a, that there's both going on at the same time because I do think that she knows the difference between right and wrong, or else she wouldn't at this point be able to be um, declared competent. Um, you know, that is one of the big things that they have to. to uh, determined is that she understands the difference here. And, um, you know, this is the behavior that people are already starting to report that some of your viewers are seeing, um, that when she's on uh, the news that she's smiling inappropriately, that she doesn't show grief. I mean, this is, you know, uh, this is a, this is a tough, tough position for the defense, um, because she's constantly, people are going to be looking at her all the time. Um, and what they see is not normal behavior. I mean, it doesn't appear to be or feel like normal behavior. Um, and so, you know, is there a little bit of both going on? Absolutely. Um, and I think anybody who, who takes the life of somebody else um, has a little bit of both in them anyway. Um, you have to have a little bit of something wrong with you, um, whether it's just pure anger, you know, out of, you know, um, and, and uh, like in a voluntary manslaughter and you just cannot even control your anger. I'm sure there's a, a mental illness for that portion too, where you snap. Um, but there's also some evilness that goes along with it that you couldn't control your behavior. So I think it's both. But in this instance, it's super complicated because it, her children were involved. There's another murder. You know, there's another person that's involved. Um, plus she's got, you know, involved in the uh, cases in Arizona. Um, yeah, there's there's a, there's a lot going on here. That's for sure. I love Jean's no nonsense style. She breaks things down easily. David writes. I'm not going to put the comment up because I want to get to this comment on the screen. But he writes, "Hello from exotic New Jersey. Loving the show and the expert guests. That's my hometown right there, Highland Park, New Jersey. Super proud to be from Jersey. Some people say I'm crazy. I was just in Jersey for my dad's funeral, unfortunately, and I got my girls some shirts that say." jersey um so they are proudly wearing them blue reader writes here um gene why did the state and i think you touched on it, i just would like you to clarify here 
Why did the state jeopardize a possible death sentence with turning over the documents on the deadline? I don't know that they knew that they were going to be jeopardizing the death penalty. Um, you know, the state has an obligation absolutely to turn over the evidence. Um, and it's an ongoing duty, even though we have deadlines um, for both sides. Um, it is discovery is an ongoing duty. So even as you get more discovery or more things come to come to the state or to the defense, you continually have to turn it over, even if it's beyond the deadline, uh, because we don't, as Tara said, we don't do things by surprise. In this instance, it sounded like there was quite a bit of information that they had not turned over until late. Um, but the you know the penalty for not turning it over would have been far worse. Um, I mean, I don't even want to think about that uh, because that that would have been awful. Um, so I don't I don't know that they intended that they, they thought that this would result in the loss of their death penalty. Um, they might have thought for sure that they were going to there. There's going to be another continuance um, to give the defense a chance to go through it all. And I think that the judge, you know, also saw this as you know this is a case that has got to. Whatever they turned over, the judge must have thought they can work through what they've been turned over, um, but there's some penalty as a result of that. Um, and maybe maybe Dave was right when he said he, you know, he um, he kind of picked a middle of the road um, compromise. Um, but I don't think that they you know they didn't do it with the intention of getting rid of the death penalty. They, but they had to turn it over. That's for sure. Um, Louise Rouleau writes. She can't plead insanity in Idaho. Uh, Tara, there is no uh, insanity defense. How would it work? She would have to be proven incompetent to stand trial um, by a medical evalu a mental health evaluation, Tara? Well, we don't. We don't have the insanity defense in Idaho at all. And, and I don't think we've had it since like the 80s, uh, early 80s. So, um, you know, what, what could happen is what happened before, um, as we kind of talked about, which is if she's not, the question is whether she's competent to stand trial. Uh, and at that point in time, if she's, if she's deemed like she was last time, not competent to stand trial, she gets uh, medical treatment. She, it's the Department of Health and Welfare, I believe, where she goes and she spent about, I think, 90 days or so. Uh, and came back and uh, was then deemed to be competent to stand trial. So no insanity defense in the state of Idaho. P. Willie writes, and we're, we're getting to the end here. The malevolent life of Lori Noreen Cox, Yanes, LaGoya, Ryan, Vallow, Daybell. She had a lot of husbands. Finally being brought into the light of accountability by a jury of her peers. I don't know about you guys, but I'm married to one woman and it's uh. It can be tiring with three kids. So can't imagine five <laughs> wives. Um, but I like that comment. Well written there, followed by Don's comment here. Uh, and Gene, this is for you. What are the chances of Chad testifying against her? He probably would require a deal for Chad. There is a lot of talk uh, that he could turn uh, state's evidence. Uh, what do you think? I don't know. I think there's as much conversation that Lori's gonna, Lori's gonna say it was all Chad. Um, you know, they're both they're both defendants here. Uh, they're co-defendants, even though they're gonna have separate trials. Um, you know, there's some very damning evidence against Chad. 
that's you know it's already that's been well publicized about his involvement in this case and involvement with the murders of these kids and the hiding of their bodies. I think it would be very difficult um, for Chad to um, you know cross fingers and say no, it was her fault, and she says no, it's his fault. Um, that's why there's a conspiracy here. Um, that's why the state gets to say that they conspired with each other. Uh, and that uh, they were both involved in this. Um, and, you know, I think it's well documented at some point. I, I don't know how deep they will go into this uh, with the, all of the the zombies and the, and the religious aspect of it, but they're going to have to address it. Um, clearly, they're going to have to address it um, in some form or fashion in the, in the trial. Um, but, you know, from, from what I understand, um, that was, you know, Chad was more the leader in that, um, and Lori came along into it. Um, but uh, I, that would be that would be something uh, if the state were to try and give Chad a deal to go against Lori, and it would have to be some really, really, really compelling information. And I just don't see that as a possibility. But stranger things have happened. And. Uh, <laughs> Tara, to you, do you think there is a chance, by the way, Tracy says, I really want to get in her head, Lori Vallis said, I think that could be a mistake. I don't know that I would want to be in there. Uh, but <laughs> Tara, to you, um, do you think that, that Chad could turn on her? Is that, that's always a possibility, right? I mean, I never say never. Uh, certainly he could decide that he wants to flip on her, decide that he wants to uh, you know, turns state's evidence, but whether or not he would get some sort of plea deal from the state as a result of that was really the question. Uh, and as Gene mentioned, I mean, he, in a lot of ways, he seemed like the instigator and leader here. Uh, certainly, you know, that that conspiracy charge uh, indicates to the rest of us that, uh, you know, the state believes that as well, that they were in cahoots together. Um, but I would be surprised if he got, uh, you know, a, a, some really good plea offer from the state to to flip on Lori. You know, sometimes in these sort of circumstances and situations, you'll see that, um, you know, the plea deal is, uh, you know, cooperate and perhaps we'll take the death penalty off the table. Uh, and that becomes the negotiation. Uh, but everything else, as far as how long of a sentence is still on the table. So a possibility, but I join Jean in kind of the skepticism that she has. I, I would be surprised uh, if the state uh, was really pushing for that at this point. And uh, Susan Moore writes, I believe Lori's alibi is not being there when all three were killed, which is uh, a motion that uh, they are uh, uh, what they admitted that uh, in a courtroom. Uh, but she's also charged with conspiracy of the murder three times. Um, so I love this comment here. Ash Rose, love listening from San Diego while walking my dog. I can tell you it's not snowing in San Diego, and I love dogs. So uh, two good things. Um, anyway, I already forgot what the last comment was. So and my mind is starting to go. It's been a long couple of weeks. Tara Malik, she's an Idaho licensed attorney practicing in state and federal court in business and commercial litigation. She has experience and a lot of it in both civil and criminal law. Uh, she is as good as they get. We had her on for the Idaho uh, quadruple homicides. We're going to have her back on for that and for this. 
But Tara, what are you uh, looking for in the coming days? Uh, you think we'll get a jury uh, by the end of this week? And then how long do you anticipate a trial like this lasting? Uh, I do anticipate that we'll have a jury by the end of this week. Um, and, you know, this case could, I think the the estimates that I've seen have ranged anywhere from eight to 10 weeks of trial. Uh, it sounds, certainly sounds like there's a lot of evidence. Uh, this is a complex case. It's not straightforward. Um, there's circumstantial evidence as well. And uh, I would anticipate we're going to be in this for quite a bit of time. Uh, and that's without surprises. And there's always one or two surprises that come up in the midst of trial, things that don't uh, go the state's way or the defense attorney's way. And uh, even mid-trial motions uh, before the court or uh, issues of evidence that may pop up at the last minute. So uh, I would say at least two months, if not longer than that. And uh, Gene, to you, Nellie, uh, Nellie Belly Alibi, I have no idea if I'm even getting that right. It's like reading license plates on the road, trying to figure them out. Um, do your guests have thoughts about how cases like these are disseminated on social media? Should there be restrictions of any kind? I think the bigger question, Gene, is we live in a in a brave new world. Um, you've got these jurors. Um, everyone has phones. All the information in the world pops up on these phones. How hard is it in a modern day in 2023 is it to keep information from a case as high profile as this out of the hands or more importantly, the eyes uh, of potential jurors? That is a, that is a big question. Um, that's why there's going to be um, six alternative jurors um, sitting on this case. And the jurors, as I said earlier, are going to remind, will be reminded every time there's a break in the case, every time they walk out for lunch, every time they come back in, Every time they leave at night, that they're to stay away from, you know, any sort of social media. Um, and, you know, they will take an oath to the judge that they will do that. Now, you know, I, I don't, you know, you have to rest a little bit on faith that they will do what they say they're going to do. Um, and that they will really just listen to this case from what they hear in the courtroom and not from anywhere outside. Um, it is really hard uh, because you get your phone on and I, you know, I get automatic, you know, updates that flash across my phone all the time, you know, CNN reports this or KTVB reports that, um, that just come up all the time as notices. Now there's things that you can do to, to really try to avoid that, but they will be asked every day, um, all the time about, uh, trial publicity. Um, and they're just going to have to be really, really super careful about, about trying hard not to listen to any of it. Um, you know, we, we want these jurors, we really do want these jurors to decide this case based on the information that they hear in the courtroom of the evidence that they hear um, coming from the testimony that, that the judge is going to allow in and that the system works. And we don't want them making other decisions based on things that they're hearing outside the courtroom that um, don't, you know, don't have that same level of trustworthiness um, and don't have the ability for the lawyers to be able to question and talk to them about it. And I think that's just, it goes back to my, my comments about cases like this that have, that are so big and, and have had so much pretrial publicity and that have so many issues involving so many things. I mean, the children, the mental health, the zombies, the, I mean, it, it, 
the, 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 the mother-child relationship. The, and there's so much going on here. Um, it's just really important that, that these jurors try hard to, um, to follow the judge's instructions. And uh, if you didn't know, you will know now that uh, Gene Fisher recently retired after 33 years of service at the Ada County Prosecutor's Office as the Special Crimes Unit Chief. During law school, even before that, Gene spent a lot of time at the Ada County uh, Prosecutor's Office before being hired directly out of law school in 1989. And by 1997, she became the supervisor of the Sexual Assault Unit and is focused on those cases uh, ever since. P. Willie writes here, Alex Cox had a sick relationship with his younger sister, Lori, and was convinced he was her personal protector, punisher, and assassin. He had a prior brain injury when 16 years old with a functioning level and easy for Lori to control. be interesting to see how much of that comes out in the trial. Some of those questions are still unanswered, but no doubt um, it was not uh, the most normal and functional uh, relationship. Gene, uh, you get the last word here. Uh, when will this trial, do you think, start? How long do you think it lasts? And what are you looking for? I agree with Tara. I think we'll have a jury by the end of the week, the way things are moving. Um, and, uh, you know, the state has indefinitely have la a few less witnesses. The defense might have a few less witnesses since it doesn't have the death penalty involved in it. So it could move along a little bit faster. Um, but there aren't a lot of shortcuts. Um, so I think I, th I think we're still looking at about eight weeks or so. Um, and then, you know, we don't have because the death penalty is off. Um, the jury will not have to sit for that extended uh, period of time um, where they determine uh, the death penalty or not, which is a, which is a whole nother phase of the trial. Um, and so they they will not have to sit for that part of it. Um, <clears throat> and then um, you know that will be the judge's job, um, presumably, uh, if there were if there is a conviction uh, sometime after that. So I think we're looking at about eight weeks. You heard it there, eight weeks, two months. We'll see if that is uh, correct. A quick programming note. We will be uh, live tomorrow at a special time, 12.30, a lunch live. And uh, so far we have Ashley Wilcott, uh, Judge Wilcott from Court TV. She's going to be joining us to talk more about this case. Thursday, live at 5 p.m. Eastern. This is a screwy week. And then Friday, back to live at 1230, I'll be tweeting it out at Podcast STS. We'll hope you will join us. And then next week, back to the regular time at 7 p.m. Eastern, every day of the week, except Friday. Until then, thanks so much, STS Nation. Thank you to Dave Leroy, Tara Malik, and Gene Fisher. Love you, America. Final seconds of the game, a chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, 
Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.